HR will split into two fun- three functions, right? You'll have the HR administrators because you've got to run a tight ship, internal and external. So everybody's got to be fair. Everybody's got to be motivated. They've got to have the right conditions. You've got to have the right set of principles when it comes to gender discrimination. So there'll be a role for HR admin, no matter what. Welcome to the Up In Your Business podcast, building you to do business better. This show is about intention, transparency, and insights from business professionals sharing their personal business. Discover what they've learned the hard way so you don't have to. Empowering a new breed of self-aware leadership. Here's your host, Angus Nelson. Hello, hello. Welcome to episode 052 of the Up In Your Business podcast, building you to do business better. I'm your host, Angus Nelson. It's great to have you here. If it is your first time, this is your weekly dose of business savvy, emotional intelligence, and oftentimes a bit of inspiration. I help you master your mindset, dominate your fears, unleash your amazing, and live your most effective self. And today... I really, really wrestled with posting what uh, you're about to hear. Um, Unfortunately, the guest that I interviewed um, made some public comments in an interview with Business Insider. And I'm talking about Kevin Roberts. He is the chairman or former chairman of Saatchi and Saatchi. He also was the head coach at Publicity Group, a French company. He has stepped down from there. Uh, from Saatchi and Saatchi, and then Publicity actually has dismissed him. Since he made these comments about gender equality within the advertising uh, industry. And, you know, here's the thing. As I've wrestled with this, I want to go on record to say that I've made huge mistakes myself. And I have probably believed and said things that I have since you know, have either walked back from or changed my mind or have grown or have matured or in any way have gained new insight and perspective. And I want to offer the same to Mr. Kevin Roberts. Um, I did reach out to his people. I offered an opportunity for him to come back on and, and maybe give a little snippet of his perspective. And unfortunately, I haven't heard back from them. I think he's kind of um, laying low right now. And it totally understood. Uh, it hasn't even been a month yet. And um, by the time this airs, uh, it will be a, a, a month. And that's it. So he's had to get his house in order and I'm sure has to make a lot of adjustments in his life. And um, my heart goes out to him and his family in this time. And it's rough. Um, media is not kind Um, and sometimes when we step out and say things with a little bit of verbose, um, it can come back and bite us. And, um, when your mindset doesn't necessarily transcend or involve or evolve along with, um, the needs, the emotions, the feelings of other people, whether it be race, whether it be gender or what have you, sometimes we just don't know what we don't know. We haven't been in other people's shoes. And a few weeks back, uh, when we talked about racial uh, issues, you know, I tried to tread on that very lightly because I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not 
privy to those interactions and understandings in the same way um, the minefield that uh, Mr. Roberts is contending with. Uh, I don't want to sit there and judge and take sides, but I do know this. I have a whole lot of grace and I have a whole lot of understanding and it is with utmost respect um, that I present to you the interview um, that uh, we had together. Uh, it's about his new book. It's called 64 Shots, Leadership in a Crazy World. And I think that that's pretty appropriate a title in terms of what's going on for him right now. At the same token, he's wrestling with his own leadership uh, capacities and abilities. And and I know he'll pull through in some way, shape, or form. Um, but I have to just, you know, to you, to be fair to him and to you, I just wanted to give full disclosure that I did not want to release this when everything went up. I knew that it would have lots of SEO value and people would tune in just because of all the drama. That's just not how I roll. Um, I know that I'm probably a terrible journalist or broadcaster because of that. Um, but for me, um, I just, I love people too much, um, more than, than I love, um, the drama and the attention. Um, I don't need that. So with that, uh, we're going to jump into this interview right now. It's really a great interview. And ironically, Kevin actually mentions gender and discrimination in the midst of this interview. Um, And um, it's just sad that it went down the way that it's gone down. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, just jump on Google and and you can find out. And with that, um, I want to bring you Kevin Roberts in fine form uh, in this interview right now. Welcome to the Up In Your Business podcast. I'm your host, Angus Nelson. We are building you to do business better. I'm on the phone with Kevin Roberts. Kevin, how are you today? I couldn't be better, Angus. And you? I'm doing great. Uh, Welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. All right. So I'm in New York, and where are you calling from? I'm actually in Nashville, Tennessee. Right, so I guess we've got uh, that little one-second delay. You must be censoring me or something. Oh, are you going to get all buck wild? I'm not going <laughs> to have to delete you. Big potty no, mouth. No, I'm safe. <laughs> well, Media safe. Awesome. I want to talk to you today. We're obviously going to dive into your brand new book. You've got some insights into this book called 64 Shots, Leadership in a Crazy World. And in addition to that, I want to talk about, you know, some of your thinking and kind of, you know, get into your your journey as well. So first off, I loved your book. Um Thank you. And as we were saying just before um, we got on the air, much of it as reference to New Zealand, where my mom is from, that's her home country, I, I caught many of the references, Mari Words, the All Black, Sir Edmund Hillary, it was strewn throughout. And the other thing I loved about it was Vince Lombardi, because I was raised in Wisconsin, an hour and a half from Lambeau oh, Field. Wow. So okay. well done. <laughs> <laughs> Has your mom read it yet? That's the question. No, she hasn't. I'll have to sneak it into her hands. Um, but I, I did learn Show one... the pictures anyway. Yeah. Well, there's some great pictures in here. The the portraits that you have of all these different individuals, it's kind of inspiring, actually. And uh, we'll dive into that, because I think some of these individuals were, were quite remarkable. 
Um, but before we get into the book, there's a portion in there that I remember reading about how you kind of got into all this, um, coming out of school and then telling someone you'd work for half the salary if they gave you a shot, and you kind of dived in. Can you take us back to how you got through and fared through school and then got into the business world? I uh, came from a working class, class family like many. You know, we, we didn't have very much. I went to a local primary school, and I was the first kid out of the primary school to get a scholarship at the age of 11 to go to a, a terrific um, grammar school, Lancaster Royal Grammar School. It was terrifically strong academically, boys only, about a 1,000 boys. Great, great sporting school. I'm a governor there. I'm still heavily engaged. But they threw me out at the age of 17. So um playing rugby playing cricket and um yeah not focusing on some other things so i got tossed out and had to um make a living and not go on to college and in those days in the 60s it was a fantastic time for that to occur a little bit like today because there was opportunity there was growth there was youth there was celebration there was optimism there was disruption there was radical change going on, whether that was politically, sexually, uh, socially, creatively. And there was a time when if you were young and you had what I call the ABCs, ambition, belief, and courage, you could have a crack at making it. And I think those things apply today. And, and I went down to London, as you did in those days, you know, the swinging 60s, Carnaby Street, King's Road, and hooked up with Mary Quant, who was the up-and-coming rising star of fashion and, and cosmetics and makeup. And I, and I got lucky there and started working as a makeup artist and then was promoted to marketing, promoted to brand manager, promoted to country manager, all before I was 21. And I had no idea, right? We were, it was where I learned to fail fast, learn fast, and fix fast. Mm -hmm. And um, I worked for three women, one after the other, and learned a lot about connectivity, collaboration, um, the importance and power of emotion. I learned a lot about instinct and intuition. Um, and it was just a, a wonderful, wonderful period in my life. And I think as I look about what's going on today and, and see everything that's going on around me, those days are back again. I'm, not, I'm a real big fan of millennials. I'm not part of this millennials are idle or they're entitled. I just think they're the most exciting bunch of people that we've come across. Yeah. So, yeah, pretty good times. Yeah, I, I think I agree with you in terms of the millennial thing. We, we might even touch on that a little bit later. Um, during that time, you obviously you didn't have some of the accolades that you know traditionally people had known. <laughs> you know, you didn't have the piece of paper on the wall that validated right. you in some form or fashion. Yeah. Again, much like yeah. many in the tech world today. Um, what were some of the things that perhaps you had to face, you know, even psychologically, you know, being a young person and being in, in a place of influence, did you have to go through, you know, some periods of, you know, self-doubt or imposter syndrome? Like, what was that to push through? Yeah, no, not really. I had a chip on my shoulder because I hadn't gone to university and I've had that chip on my shoulder ever since, you know, so now I've been granted four honorary degrees. Uh, it's the best way of getting a degree, actually. You get an honorary <laughs> one instead of having to do all the work. And way and, cheaper. And, 
<laughs> way cheaper <laughs> and I'm not in debt right. um, and I've been the CEO in residence at Cambridge University one of the great institutions for eight years and I now teach the Master of Philosophy program there I teach the MBA program in Lancaster in the UK so I've had that uh, you know burning platform of desire to catch up intellectually if you like mm -hmm. so that was one thing that I uh, lived with and actually enjoyed and, and and it fired me up the rest of it you know i, I was real lucky because i've been mentored mentored by a bunch of different guys throughout my career who have given me really unconditional affection and support and they've believed in me and driven me and encouraged me and kind of uh you know made it clear to me that if i performed then there was room for at least one pirate on the ship. Nice. And I was lucky enough to be inevitably that pirate at places like Pepsi-Cola, Procter & Gamble, and Gillette. Um, so mentoring and being mentored, I know you care quite a lot about that. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think it is very important. Yeah, and, me anyway. and, and along the way, um, you know, you started at Saatchi and Saatchi, um, gosh, what, 20, 20 years 20 ago? 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And you... But I went in as the CEO, right? And, and one of the things I learned when you're going into a new business, go in as the top dog. It's so, so <laughs> much easier to learn it. <laughs> yeah. So I'd never um, worked in advertising before. I'd been in marketing and general management on the other side of the fence. Right. I had no idea how to run an agency, you know? Right. And I thought, wow, this is going to be... Um, it's going to be real interesting because we're in crisis, you know, otherwise they wouldn't have turned to me. The, the brothers, Maurice and Charles, had been ousted and the margins were terrible. We were losing clients, losing people. It was the beleaguered, battered Saatchi and Saatchi mm -hmm. were the headlines. And I thought, wow, who do I know that's been in this position before of having to turn around something pretty quickly and they don't really know much about it? And I didn't know anybody. Yeah. So I called up a guy called General Norman Schwarzkopf, right, who mm -hmm. at that time had just led uh, America brilliantly in, in Kuwait and had repelled the forces of darkness and kicked Saddam Hussein back into Baghdad. Mm -hmm. And he had never been to war before as a commanding officer. So I just called him up on spec and I said, listen, these things are not exactly the same. By the way, can I I'm just interject? It's like, like you just called General Schwarzkopf, you know, like you do. Yeah, like you do. <laughs> Why? Well, what's the worst you can do? Hang up or what? Right? Oh, that's great. And I and I called him up and said, "Look, you don't know me, but I'm I'm going to come and um, go into a big business that's uh, iconic in many ways, mm -hmm. and I've never worked in it before. It's not in the same remote thing as going to war." And the guy was—he just laughed. He thought I was crazy. He said, "Come down to my ranch." and we'll have a beer and a burger and we'll talk about it. So I was on the next plane, went down to his ranch, we sat down, he grilled me a barbecue, we had a domestic beer, I think it was Coors Light, mm -hmm. and he gave me a piece of advice that, has, that was just, he just said to me, when given command, take charge and do what's right. Mm. A man, I don't know about you, but it, uh, I was clear then, I was clear. Wow. And, you know, in your book, gosh, it's filled with so many nuggets, and you're just already starting to unload some of those. Um, you're alluding to something that you said in your book about optimism. 
because uh, yeah. coming into another great guy. you know right. that kind of situation, can you share a little bit about that philosophy? Well, it, my belief has been ever since I was three years old that you know my parents were always seeing you know they didn't have an education. They they left school when they were fourteen. They were part of big family. My father was a security guard in a mental hospital, which is pretty much the same job I had at Saatchi and Saatchi. And my mother worked in a uh, in a in, in a shop and and they never they were part of the working class and they didn't want to that was what they knew and that's where they wanted to stay and, and so on and I didn't want that and I had an auntie who was very progressive and and really believed in education and really believed in knowledge and thought I could be a teacher and and so she was massively encouraging to me and I was so optimistic that I could change the world. I'm very friendly with my old English teacher who's now in his early 80s. And he said, I'll never forget when you stood up in class at the age of 14 and told everybody you were going to be a millionaire before you were 30. That old class just thought it was hilarious. Right. And he said, but that was, you know, a sense of your ambition and, and, your, and your purpose and your desire and your, your, your sort of, uh, I don't know, foolishness, right. bravery, naivete, I don't know, call it what you want determination and will, but more than anything, it was a form of optimism. And I always, always, always have been radically optimistic. Mm-hmm. And not always, you know, sometimes in the minority, you know? And again, I was fortunate enough to be speaking at a leadership thing a few years ago with Colin Powell, who I always thought would have made an absolutely wonderful president. And... Um, General Powell and I were in the green room because he was speaking and I'd been speaking. And so I used the hour to pick his brains, right? What you're going to do when you're sitting with a guy like that. Right. And so I probably was a complete pest. One of the things he said to me was perpetual optimism is a force multiplier. Mm-hmm. And here's this guy telling me that. And I felt vindicated. Yeah, yeah. I thought, yes, I was right all yeah. along. Uh, and you have it in yeah, big so letters in your book. I totally want to rip oh, out yeah, that page right. and frame it. Yeah, well, I, I don't know how you feel about these things, but in a crazy world, you know, we have enough cynics, we have enough contrarians, we have enough backbiting, stabbing, name-calling stuff going on. Yeah. But boy, when I, you know, we're only here once. We should We should take a look around at, you know, what it is we want to do when we, you know, what are you going to do? with the rest of your precious life, you know, make a difference or mope around being average. Yeah. And you, you you combined, you know, the optimism with, you know, the ABCs you were saying before, um, you know, all that combined, you gave examples of Warhol and, and uh, Bob Dylan. And, and I love the metaphor you, you use throughout 64, because it was also a period in your life. You're about 15 years old, all of these artists, all these craftsmen, all these, you know, just people who are changing the world. And then you tied that into these 64 points throughout the book. It's fascinating. I, I just love that. But the, oh, second, the second part of that is leadership in a crazy world. You just alluded to it. Can you define why you call it a crazy world? Uh, well, you know, I was asked to go and, and talk to a bunch of uh, government people by the Pentagon. Actually, I wasn't asked. <laughs> mm-hmm. they, don't, they ask you in very particular ways. Anyway, so I, w- I was asked to go to the Pentagon to talk to them about how to improve the America, the image of America uh, internationally. And um, there, there were people there from Homeland Security, um, 
the FBI, CIA, and, and, and the White House, and so on and so forth. And during this three-hour session, a general um, uh, in the back of the room stood up and said, well, you know, we live in a VUCA world, right? I'd never heard this term. And he said, it's a world that is volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And I thought, wow, you know, that's the way Italy's lived forever. It's the way Argentina's lived forever. But it's not something that the U.S. has lived. And the U.S. obviously is, is the bellwether um, of the world today, the leader of the world. And he said, and we're all, that's strategically at West Point. Forget Clausewitz, forget the art of war, forget, you know, all these invasions and big standing armies. We recognize we're in a VUCA world. And I went away with that going, wow, he's so right, man. It's volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous. All this strategy stuff is nonsense. It's about execution. It's about purpose. Mm -hmm. It's about making things happen. It's about pivot. It's about responsiveness. It's about having leadership at every level of your organization because you've got to be so fast. And I was really inspired by a general of all people. And I was just happening to go to Syracuse to the Cy Newhouse School of Communications to do a, uh, an advertising thing with the students there, 22-year-olds. And so I shared this news with them. And they all looked at me like I was crazy. You know, these kids, 45 very bright communications kids. And they said, ah, that's not the world we're living in. And I said, what is the world you're living in? And we started to work on it. And so I asked them to go into little work groups and come up with what we were going to call a super vocal world, right? Mm -hmm. We're in advertising, so everything's super, you know, super league, super size, super model. And they came up with their definition, and they said, no, the world we live in is V for vibrant, because it's full of hope, full of optimism. We can do anything we want now, thanks to the internet, connectivity, and so on. It's a world that's unreal. Used to be only the big powers, the big companies, the big money, the big spenders could change things. Now we can change everything because what matters here is the idea. Mm -hmm. They said this is a world for crazies, not for realists, not for pragmatists, because it's the crazies like Zuckerberg, like Jobs, like Elon Musk. These are the guys that change worlds. And it's a world that's astounding because we can do all this overnight. This isn't going to take 10 years. And I came away, you know, after having been in the Pentagon and been illuminated, I leapt out of Syracuse with this terrific um, super VUCA idea developed by their students. And we've been trying to live that ever since. And in light of that, you know, all that super VUCA is in conflict with traditional leadership and bureaucracy yeah. and some of the corporate mindsets, right? Um, and I don't know if you know this, but, but my background, I worked with uh, crowd companies. So we, you know, did advisory and education with um, Fortune 1000 band, uh, brands from across the country around, you know, the crowd economy, peer-to-peer, -peer, yeah. you know, crowdfunding, crowd lending, everything from maker movement, et cetera. So I'm really familiar with a lot of that stuff. But I'd love to hear kind of your take in how some of the elements where in one part of the book you contrast that business is a blood sport 
And then in another part of the book, uh, later on, you talk about the power of culture, the power of everything from compassion to empathy. And, you know, so, th- so yeah. those two are kind of in conflict, and yet I don't think they're necessarily conflict as much as they are paradox. Can you maybe share well, that a little I bit? Draw, yes, it's paradox, isn't it? I mean, I draw my inspiration from your inspirational coach, Vince Lombardi. And he, he talked about man's finest hour is that moment when he lies on the field of battle, blooded, battered, side by side with his comrade, victorious. Mm-hmm. There is no better feeling. And whether you're in sport or, or military or, or business and whether you're male or female or whatever generation you are, we all love to be the best we can be. We all love to be part of a community. He also said something like, winning isn't everything, but wanting to win is. Mm -hmm. And we may want to win for our family, for our nation, for our tribe, for our brand, for our brother, for our friends. And we will accept losing. That's a reality. And we, you know, but we really want to make things better and we want to be the best we can be. We want to make happy choices. So I think that you put all those things together. I was trying to tie up somehow that in the end, performance and outcomes are very important, but the means are even more important. You know, Mm -hmm. you got to play the beautiful game today, not the brutal game. I can't stand the tactics being used by the two presidential candidates. I think Mm -hmm. they're demeaning to the office and to the nation. And uh, I think they're really, um, you know, they're, they're, uh, They've gone beyond, really, I think, and I hope that it comes back to uh, something slightly more optimistic and more positive, or, or you're going to see the destruction of the political system and the political parties as we know them, and maybe that's a good thing anyway. Yeah, and and especially contrary to one of your belief systems, which is centered around making happy choices. And in your book, you said, it's about meaning, not means. I don't like wearing a tie, so I don't. I don't like playing golf or having business dinners, so I won't. I only break bread and drink wine with close friends and family. These days, I do stuff I love with people that I like in places I enjoy. And then finally, you say... People think that's because I can, but I've been like that since I was about 15. Because if you don't make happy choices, you know, I mean, we spend a lot of time worrying about our business, a lot of time worrying about our subordinates or our bosses, our stakeholders. We spend a lot of time, a bit of time worrying about our family. We don't spend enough time on our friends and there's no time left for us. And people think that's being unselfish. It's actually not. If you can make yourself a happier, better person, everyone you touch will benefit from that. And I think you've got to take control of your own destiny, of your own happiness first, and then make yourself, you know, don't get angry, avoid the blues, make yourself into a positive person, and your outreach will be incredibly inspirational. But if you don't fill yourself up and refresh and replenish, you burn out. Oh, you are singing my song. I love it. I love it. Because happiness done by anything external will not last. It is certainly nope. internal. So I love you gotta this. you got to bring it from inside. I love this. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm having fun in this conversation. So um, I, want, I want to go a little bit deeper here. So, you know, one of the things that, um, that you went on to say is that um, there is these cues in elements of leadership. Yeah. 
Can you kind of unpack that? And there's one cue in there I especially want to dive deeper into, but I'll let you kind of go uh, into all those cues. Well, it's the one equation I've ever written in my life. You know, I told you I left school very early. I, yeah, I've written one equation, and that equation is IQ plus EQ plus TQ plus BQ all powered by CQ. And I think, so what does that mean? Well, that's the heart of any successful business today. And if you don't have those five things in sync, you are going to be disrupted, dynamited, and disappear. IQ's intelligence quotient, but not the way we judge it at school, whether you have 150, 160, I don't, it doesn't matter. IQ in business is how fast can you fail, learn, and fix? That's how I measure IQ. How fast, and millennials are so fast to learn, and they're not afraid of failure. And they fix it without blame, without analysis, without shame, regret, or guilt. It's wonderful. That's what IQ is, your ability to fail, learn, and fast. How fast and fix. How fast can you do that? EQ, obvious but very difficult. How much empathy do you have? I know you're an authority on this. How much can you feel the ebb, flow, rhythm of a business, of a culture, of a personality? Yes, we all have data on what customers say and do, but how many of us can anticipate how they will feel? Mm. How many of us? That's EQ. What, how can we walk in the shoes of others? TQ, technology quotient. Do you rule technology or does technology rule you? Are you obsessed with the thing of FOMO, a fear of missing out? Do you sleep with your phone on? Do you have more dinners with your phone than with your friends? <laughs> have you forgotten how to talk? You know, or, because if so, you don't have TQ. It's dominating you. Or do you use technology so that that can accelerate learning and accelerate it? Impact, impact. BQs, and you see on technical term, your mum will be familiar with bloody quick. <laughs> We've got to do this right now, right here. Mm-hmm. And all of those cues are powered by the unreasonable power of creativity. Mm. If an organization, it's not enough to be innovative. It has to be creative today because consumers are demanding that. And there we have it. That is awesome. And I love those cues. And, and in, in context of the uh, bloody quick, my, my mom used to say, rattle your dags. Yeah. <laughs> which was a, uh, girl. a, a comment <laughs> yeah. of, of the, the poop clumps on the back of uh, a sheep's uh, or sheep. <laughs> so yeah. as, as we kind of come in for a landing, I, I just want to take advantage of an opportunity to speak with you about something that I'm working on for my new book. Uh, I have a book releasing uh, in 2017 called Empowering Work. And I've taken a look at the fact that so many of these companies are positioning themselves to unload full-time employees and access the on-demand economy of the gigification of specialists. And there's always going to be some form of leadership um, always in place, so that's always going to stay in place. But the other realms below that, um, the data is pointing towards those being a little flexible. So companies are going to be able to ebb and flow. They're going to be able to bring people on. So it brings kind of a threat and opportunity on both sides of the equation. So the contractor employee side is going to have to manage their own brand. They're going to have to manage their own reputation. They're also going to have to manage, you know, themselves as a free agent um, and their network. On the other side, companies, and this is where I'm kind of going with, with something that I really want to kind of come down to these cues is 
that companies are going to have to become more emotionally intelligent. They won't be able to rule by threat and by bureaucracy. I see um, and forecast that HR departments are going to go from talent acquisition to talent management. And so all of that's part of this equation. How do you see emotional intelligence becoming yeah, a primary a couple factor? Of I think HR will become not not only uh, you, you, HR will split into two fun- three functions, right? You'll have the HR administrators because you've got to run a tight ship, internal and external. So everybody's got to be fair. Everybody's got to be motivated. They've got to have the right conditions. You've got to have the right set of principles when it comes to gender discrimination. So there'll be a role for HR admin, no matter what. There'll be a role for recruitment, and there'll be a role for not talent management so much as talent inspiration. We've got to inspire Mm. our talent Mm -hmm. to become the best they can be in pursuit of the company's purpose. And I think the difference between management and leadership for me is Peter Drucker. Peter Drucker said management is doing things right and leadership is doing the right things. And in the environment that you're looking at, it's going to be about making sure we all do the right things, insiders, outsiders, full-timers, freelancers. We've got to be doing the right things because we're not going to have all the people in in place to do everything. We've got to be choiceful. So the role of HR in sort of talent will be to create other leaders, not to create better managers. Fantastic. Because we, in a VUCA world and a super VUCA world, you need more leaders. So I think that's one thought that I have. I, I think the second, um, area of this is that in my experience over 20 years at Saatchi, you've got to give your people four pillars, responsibility, learning, recognition, and joy. And that's the end of the HR manual. If you give all your people those four things in equal parts, and if they give those four things to their bosses, their subordinates, and their contractors, the contractors gain them and give them you have a very productive operation because happy monkeys full of joy work a lot harder than unhappy monkeys, right? So, and if you have responsibility, learning and recognition, you become very happy Mm -hmm. and you work harder. I love it. Um, As we bring it in for a close, that whole element of emotional quotient, I'm going to wrap up just one little thing that you said here in the book. Folks, if you're listening... Um, Kevin Roberts book is out. It's available now. 64 shots leadership in a crazy world. I highly recommend you pick it up. It's a easy, beautiful read. If people want to get a hold of you, Mr. Roberts, how can they go about doing so? Yeah. I mean, I blog every day on KR connect and I'm out there in Tweetland on KR connect. Go right ahead. Join the conversation. Fantastic. And we'll end with this. Emotional intelligence is by far the most important dimension in an enterprising life. The ability to make emotional connections with colleagues, partners, clients, stakeholders, consumers, any audience is the defining skill of your future. Thanks so much for joining us, Kevin. Thank you, Agnes. It's been a pleasure. 
I want to thank Kevin Roberts for being a part of the show today. And again, I hope that you can see past all of the ridiculousness going on in the public and, and the mistakes of a human being and actually see the capacity of his wisdom and insight and, uh, and just glean from that. You know, it's interesting enough, if you look in uh, context of just human behavior and you look at all the people that, you know, my background being from the church, we esteem uh, from the Old Testament, and this guy was great, or that guy was great, even New Testament stuff. And yet, if you look at their actual life, like their stories are full of murder, they're full of rape, they're full of incest, they're full of all sorts of craziness. And yet, we like quote them as if they were some sort of idol. That's a grasp of grace that I don't think most of us uphold today for those around us. We're in such a real-time, media-driven frame of of history, and all we know is just what's thrown in front of us with all the spin and all the hype and all of the drama. At the same token, in our own lives, we can very easily look at our current circumstances and get just as jaded, just as angry, just as bitter, just as um, torn down by our own personal mistakes, uh, by our letdowns. I got an email today from someone who got a demotion and um, he's trying to deal with the ego and the hurt and the rejection. I know another person who is contending with you know, feelings of less than. And I know other people who are unemployed and cannot seem to get a break. It's very easy for us to judge ourselves in the midst of our own crisis and say that we are less than, that we are useless, that we are um, broken. But here's the thing. Understanding our human quotient for ourselves and those around us gives us the opportunity to offer to others the same aspect, the same quantity and quality of unconditional love that we would want for ourselves. And many times, even though we want it for ourselves, we don't always offer it to ourselves. And that's my encouragement today, that not only would you have that kind of grace and love in your heart for someone like Kevin Roberts or someone like, you know, fill in the blank for all of the ridiculousness in this world today. And in the same token, in that same blank, put your own name. I hope this has been a help to you. And if you want to ask me questions and reach out to me, you can always come and find me on Twitter at Angus Nelson is where to find me. If you're looking for any of the links and show notes from this episode, if you want to get into our private Facebook group, all of those links are available. Just visit uh, angusnelson.com forward slash zero five two for the show. And uh, with that, um, I'm here to help you with coaching, to help you with guidance, to help you with life. I'm your host, Angus Nelson. Go ahead and tell your friends about our show because the greatest compliment you can give is a referral to someone else, either by telling them in person or sharing on the web. Keep taking your business up by getting up in your business. Live intentionally, love extravagantly, and lead with self-awareness. Be amazing. Thanks for listening to the Up In Your Business podcast with Angus Nelson. 
Find more at upinyourbusiness.co. Remember, that's .co, not com. <laughs>